Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, it's an exciting day. This is the most important holiday in Christianity. And I want to talk about the resurrection. I've entitled our message, Proof Enough for Faith. What is proof enough for us to believe? If you're on the fence about Jesus of Nazareth, what does it take to get you to cross that fence? Thomas Aquinas, a priest, theologian, philosopher in the 13th century, once said, To one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without faith, no explanation is possible. It's an interesting statement about how different people view the same information. Evidence is interpreted through the lens of the heart. But that doesn't mean evidence is not factual or convincing or overwhelming. Now, when we get into the world of evidence today and the world of law, it's interesting that the legal system has a variety of standards for proof or certainty. If you watch many TV shows where people are going to court and so on, you you sort of pick up these different standards, or if you read the newspaper about famous trials and so on. In a criminal case where somebody's done something against the law and they could end up going to jail, lawyers try to establish guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. We've all heard that phrase, beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the standard. Now that doesn't mean 100% certainty. It doesn't mean we have video of the person on trial committing the crime, although that helps. And now with DNA evidence and so on, it helps. But it means that there's proof to this level. This is beyond a reasonable doubt. Doubt cannot be such that it would affect a reasonable person's moral certainty that a defendant is guilty. In other words, when you look at the evidence, the doubt is not so great that you're still pretty much convinced they did it. That's beyond a reasonable doubt. Now that's the standard we use in court situations where somebody's freedom is on the line. We don't wanna put somebody in jail if they haven't really done something. So that's a criminal standard for proof. In civil cases, the standard goes down a bit. The standard drops to what's called the preponderance of the evidence. It's more of a more likely than not scenario. A high probability of truth, and in some situations legally, just over 50%. In other words, if a jury says, you know what, it's more likely than not this person did this and they're being sued, we'll convict them because we think they probably did. It's not proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it's the preponderance of the evidence. So the question I have for you this morning is, what standard of proof do we apply to the claim that Jesus rose from the dead? Does he have a chance in your heart beyond a reasonable doubt or the preponderance of the evidence? Are we fair? Do we judge the resurrection story just like we would judge anything else in our world today? Because I would submit that there is greater historical eyewitness and literary evidence for the resurrection than there is for just about any other event in ancient history. 
There are things in ancient history that nobody questions that are written by Caesar and other historians. There are things that everybody accepts that don't have nearly the evidence for them that there is for Jesus risen from the dead. So will you believe it? Beyond a reasonable doubt, based on the preponderance of the evidence, is the proof enough in your heart for faith? I want to read one of the resurrection stories. One of the resurrection stories, the one that's found in Matthew chapter 28. It's on, verse, or on page 25 in your New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you. Get to about three quarters of the way through. It's going to begin the page numbers all over again. The New Testament, page 25. The end of the book of Matthew, one of the apostles. This is his rendering of the story. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who's been crucified. He's not here, for he's risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead, and behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you'll see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. Behold, Jesus met them and greeted them, and they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. For while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we'll win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they'd been instructed. And this story was widely spread among the Jews, and it is even to this day. So what are the proofs of a resurrection? First, proof begins with historical Jesus. Now, shouldn't have to talk about this. Shouldn't be necessary in a sermon, but because this was sort of spread out there in sort of liberal theological circles for a while in the last 150 years, we kind of have to begin here. And I want to begin here by talking about the proof of a historical Jesus outside of the Bible. Because there are a lot of uh, people in, in modernity in the last couple of hundred years who kind of decided, well, we think the Bible's a religious book, therefore Jesus of Nazareth is probably a mythological person. He may never have really existed. This book is just religious. But we continue to learn that this book has the most accurate history that we've seen in any book from antiquity. And archaeology continues to prove that over and over. But just in case you've heard the old arguments that Jesus is a myth, I give you the ancient historians who were not Christians. Josephus, he's a first century Jewish historian, Jewish historian of Roman history. He may have been a bit friendly to Christianity. He says this, about this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, he was one who wrought surprising feats, miracles. On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life, talking about after his crucifixion. He also wrote about James, the brother of Jesus. Said He said James is the brother of Jesus who is called the Christ. 
Incidentally, in history, we have actually found more recently an ossuary. An ossuary is a bone box. We've actually found an ossuary in the ancient world which has an inscription on it that says, James, the brother of Jesus. If you Google it, not right now, if you Google it, you can see the inscription, James, the brother of Jesus, on a bone box from the ancient world. We have found his bones. Now, Josephus may have been friendly to Christianity. He wasn't as hostile as the people I'm gonna reference now. Tacitus, a Roman historian, 115 AD, speaking about the great fire of Rome that had happened about 50 or 60 years before. He said this, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class called Christians. Christus, or Christ, suffered the extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate. So this is a Roman historian talking about how Pilate made sure that Jesus was crucified. Pliny the Younger, AD 111, governor of Bithynia, which is in northwest Turkey. He's a persecutor of Christians. He wrote this, the sum total of their guilt or error, he was persecuting Christians, the sum total of their guilt amounted to no more than this. They had met regularly before dawn to chant verses in honor of Christ as if to a God. So this is a person who hates Christians, who's trying to put them to death, who's admitting that this group of Christians chant verses to Christ as if to a God. Thallus, AD 52, 20 years after the crucifixion, writes about Jesus. He's quoted about 150 years later by a man named Julius Africanus. Julius Africanus says, Thallus explains away the darkness as an eclipse of the sun, and he's talking about the darkness that took place Friday when Jesus was crucified from noon till three that we see referenced in the Gospel of Mark. Phlegon, a Greek author from Caria, writing about this event, or an event from AD 33 roughly, and he's talking about what happened the day Jesus was crucified because astronomers, astrologers couldn't figure it out. There was the greatest eclipse of the sun. It became night in the sixth hour. This is noon. It became night in the sixth hour of the day so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. At noon, there was a great earthquake in Bithynia. That's northwest Turkey. That earthquake is described in the Gospels. The Talmud which is Jewish scriptures basically, written in AD 500, includes the Mishnah, which is a lot of Jewish commentary on the scriptures, which was written down in AD 200. Jesus is mentioned there. Now these are Jews who don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, they're still looking for a Messiah. Jesus is mentioned as a false Messiah who practiced magic. So in other words, they're admitting, Jesus' foes admit that he successfully performed miracles. Jesus was no myth. There is a historic Jesus which is referenced all throughout the ancient world. Even secular historians know how his life ended. They know he was a miracle worker. They talk about his crucifixion and some reference his resurrection. Proof number two, Jesus predicted it. If the resurrection is a hoax, Jesus never should have said anything about it taking place. By predicting it, he actually created a power for his opponents who would know to secure the body, and that's actually what they did, and that should have made their job much, his job much harder. Yet Jesus told both friends 
and enemies about his resurrection. Remember, he was talking to his religious enemies and said they would see the sign of Jonah that he would be in the ground for three days and then be raised from the dead. The disciples were too infatuated with power to remember this because they kept thinking, you're not going to die. In fact, they kept correcting him. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. No, you're not. They didn't remember it, but his enemies did. And if you're worried about the Gospels being written after the fact and shaping the narrative of both the predictions and the resurrection, remember this. The death and resurrection of Jesus was predicted 600 to 700 years before in the Gospel, or should say in Isaiah 53. Proof number three, Jesus' body was secured and buried. And this is where the resurrection story becomes actually quite fascinating. Because crucifixion victims were never treated the way Jesus was treated. Crucifixion victims were slaves and criminals. You couldn't be crucified if you were a Roman citizen. Roman law didn't allow it. So crucifixion victims were usually the lowest forms of society. They were criminals. Jesus was crucified as though he was a criminal. And after their bodies would stay on the cross, often for days, because for many crucifixion victims it took a couple of days to die, they would leave them there to warn others. And once they died, they were usually thrown into an open pit grave. They were not treated with any respect. They were scavenged by birds and dogs. Jesus' body was handled quite differently. We know from the scriptures that shortly after the crucifixion, the first proofs of the resurrection began to take place because friends of Jesus went to Pilate. They requested the body. Pilate gave them permission. And so we know that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea took the body of Jesus to Joseph's family tomb. This was the best thing that could ever happen for a proof of the resurrection. It was basically a cave. Rich families would have these caves into limestone hills, And if you went into one of these caves, you have to stoop down to about four, four and a half feet. You'd sort of climb in there. And when you get in there, there would be sort of multiple ledges on each side and in the back. They could hold seven, eight bodies. Because in that culture, people basically died and they were not buried in the ground. They were laid in a cave. And then after a year, these bodies were basically mummified. This is a very arid, hot part of the world. And then the eldest brother... This is one situation where it wasn't the ideal to be the oldest son. The oldest son, after a year, would go in there and sort of gather everyone's bones and put them in a bone box, and then they would be stored from there. So Joseph of Arimathea owned one of these caves, these family tombs that could hold many bodies, sort of like a mausoleum. And he went in there with Nicodemus, put the body of Jesus on Friday night, and then closed it with this great stone disc. A stone disc could easily be rode downhill into a sort of a rock-hewn groove. Downhill was easy, uphill was nearly impossible because these discs were there to prevent grave robbers, and so they would weigh three to 4,000 pounds. In fact, one of the earliest manuscripts of Mark chapter 16, verse four, which is in the Cambridge Library in Europe, It's called the Bizet Manuscript. There's a note in the margin. So somebody, soon after this manuscript was written, said, we're going to make a note in the margin. We recognize it's not the word of God, but they're either an eyewitness or somebody who knew an eyewitness. They put in the note, this is a stone which 20 men could not roll away. Two men had no problem securing the body, but it would take many to reopen it. 
In fact, that was the concern of the women going to the tomb that Sunday morning. They left, you know, Friday, they didn't have a chance to take care of Jesus' body. The Sabbath was coming very quickly, and so they didn't have a chance to pay their last respects. They're going early Sunday morning, and their number one concern is, we know we can't move that stone. We're going to need some help. Proof number four, the body was sealed and guarded. Only Matthew includes this part of the story. Matthew is written primarily to a Jewish audience. They would have been more aware of this. In Matthew, the prior chapter, it says, on the next day, the day after preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate, and they said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I'm to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he's risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go. Make it as secure as you know how. They went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now, controversy about what happened to the body of Jesus is a healthy thing. And there are generally two choices, maybe three. One is that he's resurrected, or the other, which you see perpetrated even from the day of the resurrection, was that Jesus' body was stolen, and the resurrection is fraudulent. There's another potential theory that Jesus was just really wounded from the, you know, the torture and he was resuscitated. That really doesn't have much merit because crucifixion was deadly. Roman soldiers knew what they were doing. They shoved a spear into Jesus' chest before they took him down. They made sure he was dead. But the religious leaders did us a favor here when they went to Pilate. They asked for guards. And this, in the Greek, can be interpreted two ways and we really don't know except by context he responded either this way, you have a guard or have a guard. And the Greek would look exactly the same. It, it wouldn't matter, you have to determine it by context. You have a guard would be Pilate saying, you have your own temple guard, you have sort of the temple police and they can guard this. Or he's saying, have a guard. That would mean the Romans. In other words, take a guard. And I believe it was Romans because only Romans would have the authority to seal the tomb legally. So Roman soldiers, obeying Pilate, approached the tomb on Saturday. Now because of the concern about a claim of a resurrection, they would have opened the tomb. A Roman guard would be four to 16 of them. It was called a custodia, a guard unit of a Roman legion. When they were 16, they could stand in a square. They were all trained to sort of cover a certain amount of ground, and 16 of them could hold off an entire battalion of another army. These were elite. And it would have taken more than four because they would have had to roll that stone back. They would have checked to ensure that the body was there because they're guarding it for Rome. They would have taken a cord. They would have placed it on either side of the stone, fixed it in clay on that limestone hill, and then stamped the insignia of Rome on it. That's what it meant to seal this grave. And then they camped. Shifts of four hours were in place. They would have slept in such a way that an intruder would have to walk between them to open a two-ton stone door. Failure in Roman culture, in a Roman army, would have meant the death penalty. 
And one of the favorite ways to make an example out of soldiers who failed was to burn them alive in their clothes. So these were motivated individuals. It was the easiest job in history. Guard the dead body of a leader of a completely defunct religious slash political movement where the leader has been executed by the authority of Rome, where the followers are in hiding and thinking they're next, where all dreams have been shattered and there is now absolutely no resistance. Guard that body. The easiest job in history. Well, it turned out to be a little harder than it first appeared. At dawn, the female friends of Jesus, several of them, came to pay their last respects. They had not had an opportunity to sort of dress the body of Jesus, put spices by it, say goodbye, to touch him. They were concerned about access, and in the Gospels, in the other story, you see they're coming to the grave, they're talking to one another like, who are we gonna get to help us to move this stone? But before they arrived, heaven showed up first. An angel or angels, according to one Gospel writer, there were two of them, descended to the tomb and rolled the stone away. An earthquake that secular historians say could be felt in Turkey or Bithynia shook the dawn. Soldiers fled, went back to the priests who had put them up to this in the first place, and Jesus walked out of Joseph's tomb. The Bible is incredibly honest, which I really appreciate, about the confusion and doubt of those who first saw Jesus. They had given up. The movement was over in their minds. They needed to see a living Jesus to ever have that faith restored. And they did, more than you'd expect. Because one of the things I want you to hear from this is our faith is not based on an empty tomb that leaves unanswered questions. We're not guessing about where Jesus is. Our faith is based on an empty tomb, and then, after that, a resurrected Jesus who appeared with people for 40 days, according to Acts 1, verse 3. The tomb isn't empty, and there's no Jesus, and so we believe in him. The tomb is empty, and Jesus walked with us for 40 days, which brings us to proof number five, the eyewitness accounts of a living Christ. To Mary, John chapter 20. To the other women, Matthew 28. To Peter, Luke 24. To two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. To the ten disciples that first Sunday night, Luke 24. To Thomas and the other apostles, John 20. To seven apostles in John 21. To all the apostles in Matthew 28. To all the apostles in Acts 1. To James, 1 Corinthians 15. To Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. And I love this one, 1 Corinthians 15, 6. To 500 people in Galilee at one time. The context for that statement is this. When Paul wrote Corinthians about 20 years or so after the resurrection, he said this. Some of you are questioning a physical resurrection of Jesus from the grave. He said, I understand. But if we don't have a physical resurrection from Jesus, we're sort of hopeless. We're still in our sins. We still haven't solved the sin problem. We've got all sorts of issues and we're sort of foolish to follow Christianity if there isn't a resurrected Jesus. And then to give proof of it, he said this. 
that Jesus appeared to 500 people at once. Now remember, this is AD 50-something. He said 500 people at one time, and he said most of them are still alive. So if you want to go to Galilee, you'll be able to find many of the 500 people that he appeared to at one time. In other words, during the era of the apostles, these eyewitnesses of a resurrected Jesus were walking around, going to their workplace, going to their synagogues until they were kicked out, starting churches. They had seen and walked with a resurrected Jesus. And just like most of the Gospels, we have no reason to believe that this is any more than a fraction of what Jesus did and said. The list is far from exhaustive. Most of this list of individuals that Jesus saw take place during the first week after his resurrection, when he's just proving it for the first time. And then we have others from the last week. He's there for 40 days. It's basically six weeks. So there's all kinds of other appearances that Jesus would have had. The scriptures are by no means exhaustive. And compared to other happenings in the ancient world, this is massive eyewitness corroboration that Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, hung on a cross on Friday, paying for the sins of humanity. And as he did that, God the Father created darkness on the earth as a symbol of judgment, as he judged every wrong choice you and I have ever made in his Son in that moment. And right before Jesus died, he cried out, it is finished a Greek victory chant that armies would chant as they came into cities after victory because Jesus is saying it is finished as a symbol that he has created victory over sin and death which culminated in his resurrection days before. Jesus was alive. Jesus is alive. So back to my original question. Is the evidence enough? If you sat on a jury, if you were called to jury duty, you sat on a jury, and it's a criminal case, is there enough evidence to prove that Jesus rose from the dead beyond a reasonable doubt? Or let's say it's a civil case. Lower the standard a little bit. It was 2,000 years ago. Is there enough evidence that Jesus rose from the dead based on the preponderance of the evidence? I think there is. Or is it just not true? Yet it emboldened a completely defunct religious movement. It made cowards into martyrs. It empowered the beginnings of the early church. Miracles continued into the early church during the apostolic era, giving testimony and proof to a living Jesus. Is the evidence enough for you? Because if it's true, if it's true, it can be applied to your life. If it's true, in Jesus' death, our sins are paid for 
And in Jesus' resurrection, this is what the apostles say it gives us. It gives us victory over sin. It gives us the power of the resurrection in our lives to become better people. It gives us victory over death. In Jesus' resurrection, we have hope that when we close our eyes at the end of this life, that we also can be raised from the dead. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, we never can be, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If it's true, we're forgiven and we can live forever if we believe. Jesus did all of this for us, for you. And he does ask for something in return. Salvation is a gift. But what he asks for in return is you, committed to him for a lifetime. If you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus in your life, I just want to tell you what that looks like. The Bible talks about faith. Faith has a variety of meanings. It's an elastic word. The idea is to believe in something. The idea is to commit to something as well. And when it comes to being a Christian, we're committing to the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. We're trusting, we're exercising faith in what he did on the cross and we're acknowledging that we believe that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for our sins and we're trusting in that. We're not trusting the fact that we can be moral enough to please a perfect God. We're trusting in the fact that we'll never be good enough to please God on our own, but we have a savior who died on the cross. We're trusting in him and he satisfied God's wrath for our sins. Son of God, savior and Lord, we're committing ourselves to his lordship, which means he gets you. He gets your commitment. He gets your life. You know, if you have an open heart to Jesus this morning, I would just ask you to consider taking that step of faith. And as I just walk through these few words of prayer of faith, I would just encourage you to say them in your heart of hearts silently and invite Jesus into your life as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. Jesus, I believe. I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe you died for my sin, satisfying the moral nature of a holy and perfect God. And I believe you rose again, paving the way for my life after death. And I want to follow you. I commit my life to you as Son of God, Savior, and Lord. In Jesus' name. A simple prayer like that, there's nothing magical about those words except they reflect a heart of faith. And that is how we begin our Christian journey. And finally, for those of you who've maybe known the Lord for a long time, people like me who accepted Jesus, was taught about Jesus, was in church before I was born, made a commitment to Christ when I was six, do I live as though it's true. Do I live as though it's true? You know, sometimes when you're around something, you fail to appreciate everything you get from it. Good example of that would be marriage. You know, you're sort of used to it. Sort of expect you got this great spouse. Or you have happiness in your life from other areas. You get sort of used to it. You don't really appreciate what you've got. And sometimes that's a case with faith issues. 
You sort of, you know, you, you know the God of the universe. You've made a commitment. You're following You have an assurance that when you die, you're going to be with him in heaven. And you hear stories, great stories in the scriptures, and you leave church. It's like, meh, you know, whatever. It's not a big deal. It's old hat. A skeptical friend once asked Pastor William Williman, who's an author, why do you need a supernaturally resurrected body of Jesus to make your faith work? In other words, why just can't you have some good stories in the Bible? Why do you need a resurrected Jesus? This is what he said. I don't need a resurrected Jesus. Come to think of it, I'm not sure I want a resurrected Jesus. In fact, in one sense, a resurrected Jesus is a real nuisance for me, personally. I've got a good life. I figured out how to work the world, on the whole, to the advantage of me and my friends and family. My health is good. Everybody close to me is doing fine. I have the illusion that I'm in control, that I'm making so, you know, a so significant contribution to help Jesus on my own. I don't need a bodily resurrected Jesus. In fact, my life would become much more difficult if it's true. Once I believed it was true, my life was harder, not easier. Do I live as though it's true? Because once we accept that there's a resurrected Jesus, we're acknowledging that his ethics get to shape our ethics. That his values are to be our values. That his purpose, the reason he says we exist, becomes the reason we exist. That our vocations may change, my vocation changes. I don't get to run a mutual fund or a hedge fund in New York City. Instead I'm here talking to you. That our relationships are based on who we care about with the idea of reaching them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. When we're Christians, everything changes because we sort through every action every day of our lives based on the ethics that we share that come from our faith in Jesus Christ. Do we live as though it's true? Well, I'm gonna pray in a moment here and as we do that, Thank you so much for coming, and as, as I pray, uh, we're gonna have our worship team come back forward, and also a few people uh, in the front to, to pray for you. If you have a special request for yourself or a friend, they'll be down here during that last song uh, as well. God, we thank you for your word. And we believe that your word is sufficient. We know that these manuscripts that we have that turned into our gospels, are that we have early manuscripts from the first and second century, these stories weren't changed. They are in great agreement. The question is, do we believe them? We see the evidence, and now the issue is our hearts. And I pray that in each one of us, your spirit would open up our hearts to not be harder on the Bible and harder on Jesus than we would be in any other court situation where we're looking at the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. And I pray that we would follow you as a result and that you would change us, and that we in turn would influence the world around us to have hope in the Son of God, in whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.